This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Hey, friends. Welcome to We're Not Fine, our first solo bonus episode Do you want to know how this happened? Let me tell you. So our amazing, amazing Sterling interview where he was talking about narcissism and I may or may not have asked him. Oh, here's Juliet, my dog. Sorry about that. I may or may not have asked him how these 27 types of narcissism have anything to do with the Enneagram and he dove in with me and told me how every different Enneagram type has their own version of narcissism that looks just a little bit different. And I was so fascinated that our one question accidentally turned into a 45 minute episode while my dearest pod spouse, Doug, his eyes rolled into the back of his head and he slithered off of his chair because Enneagram's just not his thing. And if it's your thing, this might be the best episode you've ever listened to. And if it's not your thing, it's okay. I still love you. And um, I hope you enjoyed the other bonus episodes that dropped on Tuesday. Bye, guys. Hope you love it. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I'm in Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. I teach at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and uh, I was kind of all over the place academically. I studied uh, English for my undergrad. And then um, in my master's degree, I got a little bit more yeah, focused, I guess, and started studying. Um, I studied counseling uh, and focused on personality and personality disorders. So I did that in my master's degree. And then, um, Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, <laughs> I love personality typologies. Um, the best. <laughs> I love personality typologies. Um, I started that in, in high school. Uh, specifically, the Enneagram um, is one of my favorite personality typologies. And and so then my PhD, I, I actually did my PhD in communication um, and also taught in women's and gender studies and start, taught queer theory and all kinds of things. So I've, I've, I've dabbed a little bit in, in this and that. But... Um, finished my PhD in communication and then kind of went back to my psychology graduate school roots um, and delved more into personality psychology and uh, got really interested in, um, I've always been interested in empathy as just a concept and, um, you know, kind of identify as a highly sensitive person, I guess. And so I've been around some narcissists in my life, <laughs> in my in my family and also professionally. And so um, it, it just seemed like a good time to kind of converge my interests. And so I kind of combined my interest in the Enneagram personality typology 
uh, and uh, narcissism and came out with, uh, uh, did a research study and then wrote a book, uh, The Narcissist in You and Everyone Else. Um, so yeah, and right now I teach in, I teach human relations. So I teach classes on, of course, personality. Um, and then I also teach like uh, uh, cultural awareness and social justice classes like that. So lots of consciousness raising kind of stuff. So, so yeah. Oh my gosh. Dr. Sterling, you are amazing. And I knew immediately that I was going to love you and I needed to have you on the show because you had me at the Enneagram. <laughs> no, Doug, I mean, he has to put up with so much with the Enneagram. And so I was like, yes, narcissism, Doug and I are also in love with personality disorders. We love yep. talking about them. We love the typology. Um, I I really want to hear about what you have to say about the typology. The you were talking about twenty seven types of narcissism and the enneagram. Um, the first thing that I'm really curious about, if you feel comfortable talking yeah. about it, is how did you end up with this as a specialty and an interest you mentioned yes work love like who were the narcissists that in got my life yes. here like what was your experience we'd love to know um it, it's interesting i um i had a um well i have a great i have a couple of family members that i would consider to be on the narcissist spectrum one of them is my grandmother um, who's still living, but will never listen to this, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> so, no offense, but she just doesn't, she would have no idea. Um, but, um, so that's why I always feel comfortable talking about it, because she's like almost 90 years old, and she's not listening to podcasts, but she's still kicking. Um, but anyway, so I, I, and I didn't really know that's what it was. I knew that um, my mom, uh, who passed in 2021, uh, suddenly, and, but I knew she had struggled with what now I recognize are the effects of narcissistic abuse from a, a parent. Um, it just, it was sort mm -hmm. of, my grandmother's more of kind of what you might call the, it, it's the, she has a narcissistic subtype that people don't often recognize. And even I didn't recognize it until I really started to kind of delve in and go, oh, this is, this is what the problem has been um, for all that these years. foreshadowing to yeah. all the different subtypes. Yes, <laughs> a little, little foreshadowing there. Chomping at the bit. Yes. Yeah, so, so that, um, that didn't really come into view until I started really delving into this book. And then, um, I had a, um, a professional mentor, I guess you could say, who, uh, actually, you know, I, I got a lot from that person, but they ended up being, which I saw the signs, but then didn't, um, <laughs> at the same time, I was very much in it. Um, and then once I, kind of broke away from them as a mentor, then the narcissism came out and they wanted to take ownership over everything that I had learned and, and it got weird. Wow. So, um, and it also, I think it gets really complicated when it's a mentor mentee situation because yes. we're naturally in this position of, you know, not bowing down, but like the hierarchy is yes. Boring. Yes. And so sometimes you can't even spot the narcissism because it's coming from a place of mentorship and guidance. Right. And I know more than you. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Exactly that. And and, it, and I didn't see it coming 
Um, and, and so that was, um, I mean, you know, in retrospect, I can look back and point to things and go, oh, okay. Yeah, it was there. I just, you know, you're a little bit blinded by it. And, and I did get a lot of value, you know, from that, that dynamic, but, um, you know, not uncommonly once you kind of separate from the person or get some kind of success outside of them, um, that's when you'll get the kind of antagonistic, uh, features. And so that, that was, um, and that's been fairly recent in the past few years, especially since the book was published. And, um, so, so those are the closest, um, I did have a love interest that was, um, definitely (laughs) on that, on that spectrum. Um, um, you know, I, I grew up really kind of admiring my grandmother. She was very, um, you know, in, in where we live, my family's kind of well-known because they were the first black family to buy a home in Norman and they integrated, they were, you know, there was a lot of kind of civil rights stuff in the sixties. Um, and, and my grandfather taught or teaches still actually at the university of Oklahoma. And so they're, you know, minor kind of celebrity, local celebrity family. Right. Um, and I really admired them and still do for the things that they accomplish. Um, and my grandmother was very, you know, being a young little gay boy, she was very worldly and classy and taught me things about culture and etiquette and all of those wonderful things. Right. Um, but, uh, so I guess I didn't really notice that it was always kind of about her. Everything was always kind of about her. Um, I did see the way in which, you know, they had seven children um, and my mom was one of seven. And so I did see how she treated all of the children differently and not in like the good different way, like in a, it was very clear who was the favorite and who wasn't. And my mom was kind of the scapegoat of the family for whatever reason, no real good reason. Um, So I was always aware of this kind of, she would treat me very nicely and would hang out with me and do things with me. But then she wasn't like that with my mom. And as a kid, that was kind of hard to like, what's going on? Like, why isn't she, you know, as nice to my mom. And so, um, so there was always this kind of weird dynamic. And then as I, you know, as I, my mom struggled with alcoholism, um, you know, most of her, my life, or at least second half of my life. And so, and I sort of got into a codependent caretaking role with her. And I would often go back to my grandparents. Um, you know, my grandfather's not, not narcissistic, but it's not as much. Um, and they wouldn't, um, they just wouldn't, they didn't care. It was sort of like, well, she's an adult and they didn't really want to help. And so I just really didn't, I thought they were just kind of disconnected because um, I had so many kids and my grandfather would step up to the plate, but, um, but my grandmother just didn't have the emotional connection. She didn't have the empathy. She couldn't show mm-hmm. the concern. Um, and it just, so I think as I got into this research and really started to delve really into the literature and do my own case studies and, um, I realized, oh, that's, that's what this is. Like that was the problem. Um, and so it, it was something that sort of unfolded um, through my research, actually. And I think I probably always knew, actually, my mentor that ended up being a narcissist kind of told me that because she called everyone else a narcissist as well. Um, so it was kind of ironic. But yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, the effects of narcissistic abuse, you know, generationally, especially if it's a parent or a grandparent or something like that and how it affects the family system. Um, and I very much see how it affect, affected my family system. And since it was, you know, because we had this kind of, you know, local celebrity 
thing going on. There was very much a public face, you know, we had to put on and that it was this, you know, great family. And then of course the reality of that is that it was difficult, just like many family systems. Um, But, and so there was a lot of not kind of recognizing it or being able to kind of deal with it at the time because there was this kind of public image that was expected, you know, including of my mom. Um, And so, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it takes some time, especially when it's someone close to you in your life. I know I've worked with clients. I'm sure you all have too, where it's clear to you that maybe they're talking about someone that could be narcissistic and it's, you know, when to tell them that and how to tell them. And, and, and there's, there's a grieving process with that. But yeah, how do you even come up with 27 types? Very good question. So, um, uh, the, you know, without getting too technical with the Enneagram, you know, there's nine Enneagram type personality types, and then there's these three instinctual types, the social instinct, the self-preservation instinct, and the sexual or intimate instinct. Um, And so there's really three versions of each of the nine types, which makes 27, right? And so so as I was doing, knowing the Enneagram, um, as I did, and, you know, being certified in that and all that good stuff. So I knew that uh, I'd read a lot of literature about narcissism in grad (laughs) school. And then as I was kind of thinking about this book, and, and I've seen, especially like, someone like Theodore Milan, who talked a lot about these different, he talked about different subtypes of narcissism, but they didn't line up um, with the Enneagram in the way that I was like, well, there has to be at least, I knew at least nine types of narcissism because there's nine different ego structures. Um, And then the instincts, these instinctual drives that all humans have, right? The social instinct to sort of group and gather and talk about social issues and then the self-preservation instinct and then this intimate um, one-on-one bonding instinct that we all have, right? And so the 27 comes from the 27 subtypes, instinctual subtypes of the Enneagram. Wow. And so I knew there had to be at least 27. And so then, um, you know, I developed an Enneagram test. This was prior to this research. And um, and then from that test, which I get data about how people describe themselves, um, I was actually able to kind of just select out. I had thousands of people take the test and then I selected out two or 300 um, to kind of zero in on and do follow-up interviews with and and then started seeing these 27 archetypes of narcissism come through. Wow. And, um, and so what I sort of postulated is that people do their narcissism, if you will, um, through the lens of their instinctual type and their Enneagram type. And so it has its different flavor depending on their type, right? And uh, I, I personally, I see narcissism as kind of like a, like a personality overlay, um, you know, or some people talk about it as like a personality type. I wouldn't personally, I don't think it's quite that, but so I, I, but I think they all share similarities in the way that the narcissism shows up and what it is in the psyche, but it's enacted differently. Um, and the focus of their narcissism will vary depending on, uh, you know, which Enneagram type they are. This is so fascinating. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think the best way for us to do this is? Like, could we even just say, okay, so the type one, here are a couple sentences. We've done two episodes on the Enneagram, but I'm sure people who are like Doug and not as obsessed as I am might need a refresher. But even like, I, I could throw out like, okay, type one, here are two sentences. And then you could tell us the subtypes. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could do that. I mean, I think that. Um, what would you prefer? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to like, uh, 
in in my latest book I'm that I'm writing, I'm trying to kind of pare it down to give people the really the, the Clisnos version of the first book when they want to delve into the 27 subtypes. So it'll be good practice for me to kind of elevator pitch it. Um, but I think I think that um, I think that that's a good way to approach it. I we definitely could look at just the nine the nine different Enneagram types. Um, and because I think that clustering them that way might be a, more digestible and I think people okay. can get it. And then we could think of the 27 as just variations on a theme of each. Love it. Okay. So first type, yes. the number one is the reformer, the perfectionist. When they're healthy, they're all about integrity, rules, doing the right thing. Things are black and white. There's a right, there's a wrong. When there's, yes. when they're unhealthy, it tends to be more critical. They feel certain that because they're focusing on best practices and that they show up more stronger, better than others, that their way is the right way. Yes. Right. Correct. So, so that particular type, I think, of um, I call these the kind of self-righteous, rigid, uh, narcissistic types. So oftentimes, there the if, if there is narcissism present, it will be more morally focused. Um, they will often see themselves as morally superior than other people. They tend to, um, you know, not hesitate to correct other people's behavior. So you get the grandiosity, but it's more in the ethical kind of moral realm. Um, and and you're going typically with the one you're going to get less of the kind of uh, flashiness you may get some, from some of the other types, more less of the attention seeking kind of qualities and more kind of punitive um, rigidity with, with that kind of narcissism. I had a client who was that and or who's had a mother who was that type and she refused to buy um, her kids anything new. So they never got new toy, even though she had plenty of money and actually did really well because she wanted them to learn the austerity of having, you know, secondhand things. And, but then she would buy designer clothes for herself. So it, there was a sort of disparity. So there's often a moral kind of high ground that the one will take when it's, I mean, they'll do that anyway, but with narcissism, wow. it's hard to break. The lessons they want yeah. the lessons and they'll die on that hill. Oh my God. Yes, okay. exactly. Type two, the helper, the giver, um, yes. the healthy, version of this type. I mean, they're incredibly relationship oriented. They are altruistic. They give, give, and it feels good to give because their boundaries are good and their self-care is good. And mm -hmm. so it's an authentic experience of giving and receiving with these types. Right. They will still probably drop everything and show up for you. They're going to buy the most thoughtful gifts. You can never out gift a two. They always are going to be more thoughtful than you. An unhealthy two is a martyr mm -hmm. and they resentfully give because they're not holding any boundaries for themselves. They never say no. And then they begrudge you what they're doing for you. They need to be needed. They need you to be grateful. There's a lot of passive aggressive maladaptive stuff. Yes. Add anything yeah. you want to that. <laughs> yeah, I would add um, one of the things that was kind of left out of two is their willfulness. So they're they're actually mm -hmm. a very willful type. And, and, the, and the original teachings from uh, Oscar Chazo and then later Claudio Naranjo talked about um, that they were, he actually described them as the most aggressive type on the Enneagram. 
Um, and if you and and actually, it makes sense if you know a two, um, and they may be really sweet about it. They catch more, you know, bees with honey than you know, but but they they really are pressing for what they want. So they think they know best what other people mm. want and need. Um, and that's because they need to be significant in the lives of others, right? They need people to need them. Um, and so they will kind of insert themselves um, in in people's lives as a way of being indispensable because they're afraid of being indispensable. So, okay, so when there's- fascinating because I, I get twos and eights sometimes when I meet a person, I'm like, they're a two, but they're so aggressive about their two-ness. And yeah. I think that means they're an eight, but they're clearly just a two. Yeah, they could they could very well be a two. Eights are, um, the, the difference is that the two is hiding, they're sort of burying the lead, right? They're not telling you what it is they want um, or need. Whereas the eights, it's more of a direct kind of quid pro quo. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll do this for you. You do this for me, we're clean, right? The two can't do that, right? Because they can't, um, it, they can't need anything. So it has to be for you. So it's they will, they're more manipulative in that way. I think we've made manipulative a bad word uh, in our culture, but um, but it's they, true. It's true. They get a lot done that way, and they can be very ambitious and successful. I think of someone like you know Chris Jenner, <laughs> right? Who's like the momager. I see her as like a two, but she's very, um, you know pushy in a lot of ways and and they can really be help people to be successful um power behind the throne sometimes so mm -hmm. so when they're narcissistic um I, I i call the the twos the um the the prideful flattering types so uh pride is a problem for twos um in general and for the when there's narcissism involved it's very very hard for them to see um obviously see any way in which they've been selfish or self-absorbed or anything like that right so this was this my grandmother is a two um and so that's why i was saying it was difficult to see because what they will do often is they will shower their attention on one person um and sort of it's a way to let other people know like if you're good or if you give me what i want then you can have this attention and this adoration um uh, but if you're not then i'm going to freeze you out and you don't exist right and so they will often sort of spotlight different people and then that's their project right at the time uh they see themselves as benevolent and kind and loving when when narcissism is there they're often can be very selfish um and self-absorbed and um there's a lot of kind of you know, i hate the term but kind of histrionic emotion that can go with two in general but um when when there's narcissism there it can be amplified so it, they're confusing because they seem helpful and loving and kind and supportive um but then there's this dichotomy where they can be really selfish and harsh and difficult to please incredible yeah. i feel like i'm learning so much i'm so excited okay the three right yeah. these guys are the achievers <laughs> and I'd say healthy version of a three, they are as amazing as they seem. They do know themselves, they do their work. They care about real connections with people um, as the unhealthy, it's much more image oriented. They're sort of a shell of a person. It's a little like empty and I like what you like because there's a constant need for external approval and climbing up the ladder. Um, so I might, I'm, I feel like a lot of 
narcissists. And this is so interesting because when I think of narcissists, I often think of like the threes and the eights. But I love that there, because I also, I'm a seven and I see my own narcissism sometimes. And so I like, yeah, this is just fascinating. Yeah. No, you're, you're, that's astute because uh, the three, seven and eight were the types, the three assertive types, right? That um, you can see the narcissism more clearly just because the energy is out and confident and, um, but, and, and, and so I get that. And I think the way we think about narcissism and often the way that it's written about very much, you think about three, right? This image conscious status driven, um, success focused person that's only focused on themselves and all of that. And, and so I, I, I call the narcissistic variations of three, the ambitious deceptive types, right? So these oh, are the, um, they are probably the most, the, the three sevens and eights are probably the most prototypical narcissistic looking, at least in terms of traditional descriptions of narcissism. Um, and the three is the narcissistic three is very, yes, very focused on image and success. And there's not a lot of inner development. Um, there it's, you know, sort of shameless attention seeking, although you get, do get that with two as well. Um, they're very attention seeking. Um, but the narcissistic three is not as relationally focused. Twos are focused on relationships um, and people, and the three is focused on success and moving up. Now they want people to think highly of them. Um, so they often will deceive people or um, adopt an image that um, maybe isn't uh, authentic, often isn't authentic in order to get what they want. Um, they can be very slick and charming and um, but there, there is a, they sort of embody the kind of superficiality sometimes we think about that runs with narcissism. Uh, and honestly, we tend to reward, um, that kind of person, especially in celebrity culture and, uh, yeah. politics, they tend to get pretty far. Actually. I think we re- reward narcissists fairly well in our, in our culture. So Such they fly under the radar a lot. Um, so good. Uh, so type four, the romantic, the individualist, the tortured artist, when they're healthy, <clears throat> they are like creative geniuses. They're just like these visionaries that they see the world in very interesting ways. They're often like actors and creatives and writers and dancers and playwrights. Um, and what I always say about the four is that they find themselves to be sort of uniquely special and uniquely fucked up all at the Mm -hmm. same time that Mm -hmm. nobody understands them. They're such an individual because they're very othered. Mm -hmm. They're misunderstood when they're unhealthy. There's a lot of like sitting in the otherness that everyone else has it better. The comparative, you know, everyone else's life is better. Everyone else has, you know, I'm, just dark and alone and sitting in the misery. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's a perfect <laughs> description, especially as a four. So this is my type. Um, um, I'm like, yeah, genius. that's it. It's Damn. hard to teach your own type, actually. I, I always like have to take myself out of myself to talk about it, but that's a, that's a good description. And, and I think that, um, you know, and weirdly in recent years, the four has become people, everybody thinks they want to be a four. And I'm like, I don't know why that is, but um, I think it's because people think it's, you're creative and unique. And I'm like, but they're forgetting all the, the other stuff that goes along with it. But, um, 
so when, when narcissism is present, I, I call these the moody entitled types. So the way that narcissism tends to develop for the four is it's what I call a lot of compensatory narcissism, right? So it's, I'm this awful fairy tale monster that has it worse than everybody else and nobody understands me, but then I'm also this special rare flower and people don't appreciate me and don't understand, you know, my, my genius, right? So you kind of get both like a negative narcissism and then an, a grandiose narcissism together when narcissism is present with the four. And there's a lot of emotional entitlement. Um, a lot of the fours in my research that I talked to were very much, um, felt like other people, uh, they were, they deserved for other people to take care of their basic needs. They didn't feel like they needed to work or had to work because they were so creative and they needed to do their creative pursuits or they were too sensitive or uh, whatever the case is. So a lot of excusing oneself from, you know, behaving and acting as regular people do. And then also a very emotionally controlling um, because the four has this inner sense of inadequacy and lack. They often in their relationships expected others when narcissism was present, expected others to sort of fill them up in a way that no one else could really do, right? So it was a lot of emotional, you know, walking on eggshells around the four and um, people feeling kind of emotionally controlled by them. Oh, let's move on to the the five, right? The observer, um, I feel like the other, there are other names for this type. What uh, the investigator, the remote investigator, anything, anything around that kind of. But role. a little more introverted, like a healthy five, usually very intellectual. They're the scientists, they're the engineers. They see things in a way no one else sees them. Um, and unhealthy might be a little bit more othered, reclusive. If I never see another human as long as I live, that's fine. Um, lower than average relationship needs kind of a loner yes yeah the five sense of self comes from being uh sense of safety and security comes from being someone who's knowledgeable who's learned um there's a fear of being incompetent and of being that eight also has um and uh of being overwhelmed by other people's demands so social demands emotional demands um, fives often, fours and fives often have that alien kind of feel in the world. And fives, um, yeah, I, th I think five is really the most sensitive type on the Enneagram. Um, they mm -hmm. are very sensitive in a lot of ways, but you wouldn't know it because you get kind of the porcupine <laughs> uh, energy instead of, you know, inviting them in. But very, the ego is kind of attached to their intellect and um, their knowledge, right? How much they know. And they kind of can hoard things in, in that respect. So I call the narcissistic version, the remote intellectual type. So they, um, yeah, you were absolutely right. Fives in general kind of isolate themselves from other people because of that fear of being overwhelmed. Um, but the narcissistic five, uh, that hoarding instinct that many fives have, where it's like, I got to hold on to everything because I don't know if I'm going to have enough for me. That's mm -hmm. kind of baked into five in general. When you add narcissism to it, you get a very kind of, um, you know, like Ebenezer Scrooge uh, kind of thing. And he's actually a five, the archetype of a five and also a narcissist, right? So you get someone who's really, can be really stingy with their time, with their emotions. Um, they can be really, uh, because they feel alien, they feel like other people don't really matter. So they don't value emotions. Um, they can see people very much objectify people in a lot of ways. Um, they they can be very shrewd, you know, business people and 
make really tough decisions because they're not really taking people's emotions into consideration. So, um, so remote and kind of cantankerous, I think is a good way of, of, of talking about them and very intellectually arrogant. Um, they tend to think they're the smartest person in the room, uh, always. <laughs> so it's yeah. so good. Um, so the six, the loyalist, the trooper, they run kind of anxious, they're very security focused, they're very relationship oriented in, you know, a security community kind of way, loyal, rooting for the underdog, um, community is important. Uh, maybe when they're unhealthy, they're suspicious, they are wondering, are you with me or are you against me? Um, and really, really worried about um, security, the phobic, the counterphobic, who's still terrified, but fighting it anyway. Yeah. Yes. Um, the six, I always like to say the six is the most complex type on the Enneagram. Um, it, it, there's, there's, uh, they're the hardest to type and they're they have a hard time finding their type on the enneagram because they're the fear is is of not having certainty right so they seek um outside confirmation because they're skeptical and they're not sure of themselves and so they need certainty and security and so you said that really well and um and but they are really emotionally complex they're scanning for danger and looking for inconsistencies and always looking for ways um, just to feel more safe and secure. And they really want to trust themselves. And until they trust themselves, they can't really trust other people. So there's always this sort of uh, push-pull with trust and uh, security. And so when there's narcissism involved, I call these the anxious, skeptical types. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, they often expect other people to uh, cater to their anxiety. Um, they will often weaponize their anxiety if they're more phobic, um, meaning they, you know, shrink away from things they're afraid of and they'll sort of control people with their anxieties and their fears. Um, and, and they also, the six in general, it tends to be mistrustful of people that are very confident, um, because they aren't. Um, and so they will often, if there's narcissism involved, they often seek to undermine people's confidence um, and they will undermine them or undermine, especially in like a professional setting. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that the narcissistic sticks will try to take down someone they've decided isn't safe or, um, and they can kind of just go after people because of this fear they have of being um, controlled or dominated. And so they yeah. end up being... <laughs> Uh, we often talk about the six as the persecuted persecutor, right? So they they think they're persecuted, um, and then because of that, they'll justify persecuting other people. And this the sort of skepticism and paranoia that we talk about with six gets really heightened when there's narcissism involved. And so you can get somebody who, um, on the one hand, can seem really disarming and funny and sometimes engaging, and then on the other hand, be really undermining and... Um, provocative in a lot of ways and argumentative. Wow. Yeah. Sterling, you are like a, a Enneagram genius. <laughs> so the seven, um, my type, and Doug is the eight, right? So yeah. the seven, like, 
when they're healthy, it's just genuine joy, adventure, life loving the best of the life has to offer. And when they're unhealthy, it's really scattered, overwhelmed, will bite your own arm off to avoid a painful situation, very avoidant, doesn't finish what they start. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the seven, I see the seven as, um, you know, they're the planner, right? They're always planning the the next big thing or the next thing that's exciting. They're seeking um, joy and positivity and they're upbeat and, uh, but they're also a mental type. So there's a lot of intellectual kind of, um, they're fascinated, right? They're fascinated by new things and new theories and new ideas. Um, and, and the seven is also very, they are running away from pain, right? They're running away from um, the, you know, the fear is, it's sort of like you can't catch a moving target. So the seven's always on the move, right? Because mm -hmm. if they feel like if they slow down too much, then all the emotional kind of, you know, negativity they feel like they've been avoiding will catch up to them. So, mm -hmm. so they're kind of always on the move and that's the way the anxiety shows up in the seven. Um, and, and with narcissism present, I call these the hedonistic exuberant types. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of hedonism uh, with seven in general. Uh, but when narcissism is present, you get somebody who um, is, again, a little bit more the prototypical uh, kind of example of narcissism, can be very selfish, uh, but also can be very charming. Um, and sevens are in general, but they can, you know, a seven can talk you into a paper bag, right? If they're, <laughs> they're, they're excited about it and they can get you excited about it. And if there's narcissism present, they often will have a lot of plans and ideas that they either can't execute or um, don't really plan to execute. And, and so they can kind of enroll people in things um, and, you know, will be sometimes can be dishonest and, and mislead people. Uh, and then they also, I, you know, I, in some of my research, I came across quite a few sevens, you know, one of the flavors of the seven narcissistic types um, who will sometimes just want people to do silly or dangerous or um, humiliating things just for their enjoyment, right? Just because it's oh. funny to them and they think it would be interesting. And um, and so you, you that can run with it. Um, and there's a lot of kind of charlatanism with the seven, right? Where it's kind of the P.T. Barnum, you know, let me sell you a dream, but there's nothing really behind it. Um, and, and so that's often the way I see the seven narcissism showing up. And so sometimes it's easier to recognize sevens when they are narcissistic, because I think it three sevens and eights, like I said, I think it kind of matches with those types, you know, our popular conception of it. I'll be sure to have Rob skip over that one <laughs> section in this episode. <laughs> okay, so eights. I have so many beloved eights in my life. I love my eights, right? And it's everything's about level of, of health. So yes. eights, I always say like they're the leaders, they're the mentors, they're the executives, they're the bosses, they're the presidents. They are champions of a cause of the underdog um they are really confident from for the most part and what i like to say is they have big dick energy and they're like main <laughs> character energy yes. and uh when they're unhealthy it's stepping over dead bodies to get to the top of the ladder and sort of very unhealthy leadership that can sometimes be abusive and um yeah i feel like yeah. narcissism 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the eight is, um, you know, the core fear of the eight is of being vulnerable, right? So the eight in general um, avoids vulnerability, um, showing vulnerability or weakness. And so, you know, uh, we often say, um, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, eights are so courageous. And I'm like, well, they're not not courageous, but they don't even have the fear come up to be courageous. So they often sort of like just go into a situation and they're like, what, you know, that's just what needed to be done. Or I just said what needed to be said. And there wasn't a lot of fear, anxiety around it. Um, so, so they're just bold. Right. And, and I think, um, you're absolutely right. When we look at narcissism, um, especially the kind of narcissism with psychopathy, right? So, um, and I don't mean literal psychopaths, but just like the, the archetype of psychopathy, right? So that the rage with any eight is right there anyway, because there's this fear of being, um, sort of overtaken or uh, overpowered, right? So they become the dominating ones. And I think when there's narcissism present, that becomes the primary feature of the personality. Um, you know, Donald Trump, I think he's an eight um, and I think he's narcissistic. Yeah. <laughs> so um, very, you know, clearly so. Not in a political way, just that's what it is. Not um, in a cute way either. It's a really great, um, we see it, right? And you can see all the ways in which it comes up. And so there is this kind of mafia dawn um, kind of that when narcissism is present, it can come up that way. There's a tyrant quality, right? And they can become really domineering, um, really aggressive, my way or the highway, complete rejection of vulnerability or softness and even bullying other, you know, when we think of a healthy eight, they are protecting others, right? They're, they're never really, they never really see themselves as protecting themselves, but there's always someone who needs their protection, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the healthy version of eight. Well, when it's nar narcissism present, um, mm -hmm. they become the bully, right? They become the tyrant. And of course, in their mind, they're still protecting someone else. Uh, but really, it's all self-serving, right? Really, it's all protecting their own interests and their own power. Um, and, and they aren't as able to uh, adjust. A lot of the other narcissistic subtypes can kind of uh, color over it with, you know, enough charm maybe to get by. And because the aid is kind of take it as it is, it's hard for them to do that. So when there's narcissism present, it really is like a Mack truck all the time. And you make it, not that they're not, they can be very charismatic and um, charming, but it's, you get that bold kind of aggressiveness coming through. Um, and the last one, the nine, the peacemaker, uh, is just, I think about them just like right on a fence. They agree with you and then they turn over here and agree with you. And it's like keeping the peace at all cost that they don't really stand up for themselves and they become sort of a passive person between, um, more aggressive people fighting over them maybe when they're unhealthy i think when they're healthy they're just like happy if you're happy legitimately like a great support person right yeah the nine is i always we often say the nine has an, an ego about not having an ego right so they kind of erase themselves um in a lot of ways and become you know very um amicable and they're they they are terrified of conflict so they they sort of natural mediators um, and they just, they want to maintain their inner comfort and their, their relational comfort, right? They just want everything to be copacetic and comfortable and nice and easy. Um, and when there's narcissism present, I call these the ambivalent neglectful types. Um, it, it's hard, sometimes people really miss narcissism in the nine uh, because 
it it isn't uh i mean not that there might not be grandiosity there but because it's nine you don't see that as much you see you still may see someone who's pretty easygoing and chill and calm um but where it shows up is their neglectfulness mm-hmm. they neglect themselves nines do this anyway um you know and so then they end up neglecting their relationships and because the nine already tells themselves well what i need and want doesn't matter when there's narcissism there they still kind of have that but then they've also decided what you need and want doesn't matter either right so they they have a really hard time um having any kind of emotional conversation about anything or um if someone comes to them with a conflict or a complaint or a grievance they're very very dismissive um, but they often seem still easygoing and laid back. And so it's, it's a kind of subtle narcissism where it's just more neglectful. Um, and they can also randomly kind of rage out, right? So the nine just suppresses their rage, the eights right up front. And so wow. when the nine is narcissistic, you're going to get more of the narcissistic rage that'll come out, which is kind of opposed to their normal easygoing personality. So people miss the narcissism in the nine very frequently because of that. Um, yeah, so I um, so I have a my author website, which is st- just sterlinmosley.com. And then I also have an Enneagram consulting and coaching business called Empathy Architects. Um, and I do that with my best friend and um, We've been studying the Enneagram for 20 years and we have a podcast called uh, Do You Know You, um, which is all about talking about the Enneagram and all that stuff. Um, and then also on Instagram, we post a lot on there. Um, and so that's imp- at Empathy Architects on social media. And so, yeah, those are those are the primary places you can find me. And you are just a delight. I'm so grateful that you came on. One of the better one of the better podcasts, I'd have to say, that I've, I've done. So you guys are a lot of fun. So I love it. Yay!